We'll hear argument next this morning in Case 10-1195, MIMS versus Aero Financial Services. Mr. Nelson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Federal Question Jurisdiction Statute, 28 U.S.C. Section 1331, broadly grants Federal Courts jurisdiction over all actions arising under Federal law unless Congress has provided other words. That grant of jurisdiction encompasses rights of action that are created and governed by substantive Federal law. The Telephone Consumer Protection Act sets forth such a right of action. It provides detailed substantive standards, and it grants a private right of action to recover for their violation. The TCPA permits that action to be filed in a State Court if State Court allows such actions, but it says nothing one way or another about whether the action may also be filed in Federal Court. Mr. Nelson, do you think that there is a clear statement rule that applies when uh, Congress attempts to divest a Federal Court of jurisdiction over claims of this kind? Well, sometimes the Court has, has talked about clear statement rules in terms like Congress must make unmistakably plain. I'm not sure it rises to that level, but what the Court has said is that uh, jurisdiction granted by statute exists unless Congress has affirmatively displaced it, and that the Court is unwilling to, um, uh, to defeat jurisdiction by mere implication. So I think it, it may be something a little less than, than what this Court has sometimes referred to as a clear statement rule, but it is a requirement that Congress act. Do, do you have anything more than implication here? Uh, no, there, there's not even implication here, uh, Justice Scalia. Um, there, there's, uh, there's, um, there's really nothing at all. Um, you'd, you'd have uh, the same private right of action that could be brought in state court without subsection 5 at all, right? I, I think that's very likely, Your Honor. I mean, uh, under, under Taflin and going back to, the, to uh, uh, over a century ago in Claflin, there's a presumption that concurrent jurisdiction over a transitory cause of action created by federal law exists in state courts. But as the Court uh, pointed out in Taflin, um, that, uh, that uh, presumption has sometimes, as in the antitrust cases, uh, been found to have been um, displaced by implication from federal policy. What is the basis? You assert that you could bring this, bring a federal cause of action in federal court. Pardon me? You think that you can bring the federal cause of action in federal court? Yes. I, I, what, is, what, is, what is the basis for Putting aside jurisdiction, what is the basis for the federal cause oh, of action? Oh, you mean the existence of the cause of action? Yes. At all? Yeah. I mean, the, the you know what this court has has uh, I think um, said in its interpretation of statutes is that where a statute creates a right of recovery from A to B in a court under circumstances Y, that is a right of action. And, well, we and the, may, we said that forty years ago. More recently, we've said that Congress must be fairly express in creating a private cause of action. And my, my concern is, if you put it against that context, that our cases require fairly direct evidence, express evidence, that Congress meant to give a private right of action. In that context, the existence of an express state cause of action or federal cause of action that can only be brought in state court, the implication that there isn't a, a one that can be brought on its own in federal court is fairly strong. Well, I, I think that's not correct. I think, Your Honor, that that is actually confusing the concept of whether there's a right of action, which is a substantive right of recovery that can be pursued in a court, and the question of jurisdiction, which is in what court may that be brought. Well, that, I, I understand that, that proposition. Uh, assuming that distinction is correct and that there is no freestanding federal cause of action, well, what good does having federal jurisdiction give you? Well, because I take it that at that point everybody can immediately, defendants can remove, um, cross that off. What, what benefit do you have if as soon as you file your action, everybody says congratulations, you have federal jurisdiction and you're kicked out of court because you have no cause of action? Well, what, what I'm saying, Your Honor, is that, is that it is not in fact the case that there's no right of action. No, no, I know. I'm assuming that we if, don't see a If there were no right of action uh, that, that is available somehow in federal court, then, of course, it does no good to be in federal court. But that's not how the court has, has treated rights of action. Limitations on the court in which a right of action 
can be brought are not part of the right of action. They're matters of jurisdiction. Can Congress create a cause of action that does not arise under Federal law? No, I I don't really think it can. Congress doesn't have the power to enact uh, State law. So if, a, if, if Congress creates a cause of action and, uh, and, and establishes uh, federal law that governs it, that is necessarily a, uh, a cause of action that arises under federal law. And there's no dispute that there is a cause of action here that was created by Congress. Isn't that right? Yes, that, that, that's correct. I mean, um, you know, th- this is not an implied right of action. It's an express right of action. Congress said in 227b3 that if this right is violated, you um, can recover X amount, $500 per violation, or, or up to three times that much in the case of a willful violation. And the question is simply whether by saying that it may be filed in State court, the court has, uh, the Congress has displaced the jurisdiction that would otherwise be available. So the, the basic reason seemed to me that it might mean may, and I, following up on the Chief Justice here who withdrew this interesting part of his question, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, Congress seemed to want to have ordinary people be able to go into small claims court in a state and bring an action from $500 because they were pestered by these salesmen on the phone in violation of the Act. Now, if you're right, they could go into federal court, but so could the defense. And so any case they bring in small claims court, I guess, could be removed, couldn't it? And how is that? Am I right about that? It's theoretically possible that it could be removed, Justice well, Breyer. Yes. Well, why wouldn't they? I mean, you know, they, they, if they're really pests, I mean, not saying they're all pests. Some might be. Uh, but uh, if they're pests and they want to drag it out, what they do is they just remove it from small claims court. They tell their lawyer, remove everything. Remove everything. And so what was Congress's objective? Seemingly to provide a simple, clear, easy thing for the average American to do when he's pestered suddenly becomes a major legal problem since the defense lawyer is instructed remove every case to federal court. Now, that's something that's bothering me, so I'd like to know what your response is. Yes, Justice Breyer. Well, there, there are um, several, several parts to the answer. The first is that that the strategy itself is self-defeating. If you have a $500 claim being brought by an individual in a small claims court, um, to pay a lawyer, to pay the filing fee, to remove it. Oh, it's not self-defeating because we keep it up. And the word will get around. Well, and in case, by the way, anyone doubts it before he even follows it, one of the things that, that will be instruct our salesmen to say is if you sue us, we're going to remove it. To, you know, there, there are many ways of it getting around. Well, Justice Breyer. Okay, what's the to, second? To begin with, now, I want to, I want to, I want to stay on this one because okay. before I go on to the next one, right. the, the, the reason that that strategy doesn't really work with right. respect to individual plaintiffs filing in small claims court is they're not necessarily, in fact, they're most likely not going to be repeat players. So they don't have any real way to find out about it. Absent, absent the, 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 uh, the telemarketer telling them in the phone call that you have a right of action. I'm not sure I'm, I'm understanding your answer because I have one of the same problems with Justice Breyer. Uh, the, the, the design of this statute, from what I can infer, what the congressional intent was, is for an uh, individual person to be able to go into small claims court. And the defendant will usually uh, be the telephone company that wants to remove it to federal court. And as Justice Breyer said, instruct the attorneys, always go to federal court. The word will get out. And, and you're saying, oh, don't worry about that. That won't happen. That will happen. That's exactly what's going to happen. Justice Kennedy, I, I think that, that word getting out is, is very unlikely to happen if you're talking about um, the individual. Whether the word gets out or not, they will all go to federal well. court. But, and I, I don't Do we have any information on, the, I mean, there are small claims brought in, in state court. Um, uh, is there any practice of removing $500 claims and paying much more than the $500 that's at stake? No, no, Justice Ginsburg, and, and that, that was the, the second Is there any reason to think before you brought this suit 
that people thought they could remove it to well, federal court. Well, in, in fact, in, in, the, in the Seventh Circuit, uh, um, defendants have been aware for the past six years, I believe, that they can remove these claims to federal court. And the ones that have been removed are large class actions. In this, in this case, no. could, could this case um, mm-hmm. have been brought in a small claims court? Where does it come from? It, it comes from Florida, Your yeah. Honor. It, it could not have been brought in small claims court for two reasons. The, the complaint on its face alleges um, 12 calls and, and more, uh, and uh, at, uh, at the $1,500 treble, the 500 treble, uh, that would far exceed the $5,000 jurisdictional limit of a Florida small claims court. The, the action also seeks injunctive relief, right. which is — Aside from the individual ones, what's actually worrying me, which I've tried to bring out, is I'm pretty certain Congress in this statute was trying to protect the average person who can't afford a lawyer who is pestered with these calls. That's their object. And I can think that if you can bring this suit in federal court, so can the defendants. And, and therefore, and I think, gee, I'm not so sure about this. Uh, uh, they don't gain much advantage, the plaintiffs, by being able to go into federal court. And there could be some advantage on the defense side to making things more complex, raising legal fees. Okay? So that's where I am at this moment. Now, I'm asking you this because I would like your best answer to disabuse me of this notion which cuts against your case. Well, I, I think, I think the, the further thing that cuts against it, Justice Breyer, is you've received three amicus briefs on the other side from people who participate in the industry. And uh, what they all say repeatedly is that there are tremendous benefits to both plaintiffs and defendants to being in small claims court in the truly small claims. The defendant, um, you know, it's, if the defendant removes, it's the defendant that's going to be racking up the legal fees, not the pro se small claims plaintiff. Well, why is that? Wouldn't the — I think you're fighting Justice Breyer's hypothetical. Wouldn't the — I can imagine if you've got a, you know, small claim type case because you've got the — uh, one of these uh, calls, and the first thing you get is the notice of removal and this. I mean, you're going to say, well, f- forget about it. I'm not going to hire a lawyer, right? I mean, the idea is they would drop it right away. Right? Well, I mean, the, the, uh, the experience is, I think, and there's an interesting article in it in a, in a publication called the Consumer Finance Law Quarterly Report from the spring of 2002 called Defending TCPA Actions in San Diego's Small Claims Court. Um, and there are some repeat players on the plaintiff side in small claims court, and the advice that the author gives is, whatever you do, don't try to escalate with those people. Don't even remove it up to the, uh, to the state court of general jurisdiction, because you're just going to find yourself in a morass. It's going to cost you, the defendant, much more money to move this claim out of small claims court. Could, the, could these claims be brought in state court? as class actions? Well, that, that depends, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg, on the state. Um, as, as the Court probably uh, may recall, in the state of New York, uh, you probably couldn't bring this action as a, as a, a class action because of uh, — But you could remove it to the federal courts, and then you could. Right. If in, in federal court, uh, I think that, that although there's, there's um, actually uh, uh, some disagreement among the courts of appeals on this point between the Second and Third Circuits over whether uh, state procedural law would apply in federal court, we think the best answer is federal procedural law applies when the claim is brought in federal court. Then, then in some states, uh, there's, there's been a recent decision in New Jersey where a New Jersey court said that, that um, a class action was not superior. But it's, uh, up, to the, it's up to the state. It's up to the it's state. Congress it's not in state. Congress court. said you bring it according to your law and your, your rules of procedure. So the state could make it. Uh, Congress uh, may have been interested in the small claims court, but it certainly didn't limit the states to bringing to putting these claims in small claims court? No. And, and, and in fact, it, number one, it, it, it probably couldn't. Uh, number two, um, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the statute creates rights to recovery and a right to injunctive relief. That's actually the, the first listed uh, claim for relief that the private right of action gives you. That is, uh, you know, injunctive relief claims are 
virtually by definition beyond the scope of, of uh, jurisdiction of small claims courts. So it created a right of action that in some instances would be appropriate for small claims court. And I think the incentives are that, uh, that um, those that are really truly small claims court matters, they'll be brought there, they'll stay there. Uh, those that are not, cases where it's worth litigating in federal court or, or worth litigating in a state court of general jurisdiction, and claims that may be uh, uh, possibly uh, suitable for class action status, will be brought in, in other types of courts. Mr. N- Mr. Nelson, it's an odd provision, this little clause, if otherwise permitted by the laws of a court of a state. What, what is your account of that provision and what it's doing here? Well, I, I, think, I think what it does is, is — um, Principally, it displaces uh, what would otherwise be the rule uh, of test of cat that um, — And, that and why did court. Congress want to do that? I mean, you would think — this is, goes back to Justice Breyer's point — you know, most of these claims, they're small claims. They typically are better uh, uh, situated in a state's small claims court. And yet here, Congress says, well, the state doesn't have to entertain these, in which case they could only be brought in federal court. Well, it's not clear that it means, you know, how much freedom it gives them not to entertain them. It, it may, and, and again, you know, that's an issue that the, that the state Supreme Courts are, are divided on, although it's a, a theoretical di- uh, division at this point because no state has actually precluded these claims at this stage. But, uh, you know, I think that, that especially read against the backdrop of the general principle that um, — while states can't discriminate against federal rights of action, they're also not required to create courts that have jurisdiction over them, uh, that what this statute was intended to do was, was recognize the flexibility that the courts would def- have to define which courts and under which procedures it would entertain these actions. Well, if the state thought that its courts were just being uh, overwhelmed by these cases, even the small claims courts, there were so many of them, would they be permitted to uh, bar them completely? That's a possible reading of the statute, Justice Alito. That's what the Texas Supreme Court has held. In fact, the Texas Supreme Court has held that the state has to affirmatively authorize them. Other state Supreme Courts have said that um, what it means by if otherwise permitted is uh, if there's a court of general jurisdiction that hears cases like this and we haven't affirmatively excluded them, and then some state Supreme Courts, such as Illinois, have said we we don't even have the power to exclude them. But, I, I, you know, that is one of the readings of the statute. Uh, but, but what's clear is that the if otherwise permitted does mean means something. It, it provides a statutory standard for when the action may be brought in a state court, which is a, a matter of, of — it's certainly not superfluous. Well, is it just when the action can be brought in state court or when the action can be brought at all? It says you may bring an action, and that's what I understood your basis for the federal cause of action to be, if it's permitted by the law or rules of, that, of a court of that state. Well, I think what it says is may, may bring an action in the courts of that state if otherwise permitted. And I think if you think about what the, what reason Congress would have to put if otherwise permitted by state laws or rules of court, it's very unlikely that it would use that phrase to denote yeah. when you have a right of action in federal court. What as you can always. To state court you would go to. I'm sorry. Uh, so it could, could an individual — you say there's a federal cause of action in this case apart from the state cause of action that's provided. Could that federal cause of action be brought in state court even though the state cause of action could not be? Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, with all due respect, I don't think that this statute creates a, quote, state cause of action. It creates a right, federal, you have two. federal cause of action that may be brought in both state and federal court. Got not. it, got it. But just to follow up. The cause of action can be brought in both, except if the state courts say it can't be brought there. The state cause of action can't be brought in state court because of this if otherwise permitted, right? The federal cause of action, though, I thought the state courts couldn't discriminate against the federal cause of action, any federal cause of action. So you can sue in state court and say, I'm bringing my federal cause of action. So the fact that you don't permit a state cause of action doesn't bar me. 
Again, um, I, I think that the premise of the question is is really not correct. This goes back to Justice Alito's point. Justice Alito said this claim arises under federal law. The substantive law that governs is not state law. Exactly right, Justice uh, That's fine. That may be exactly right. But the cause of action under subsection 3 asks whether or not this action uh, uh, it provides an action that can be brought in state court, if otherwise permitted, right? It provides an action, says that that action may be brought in state court if otherwise permitted. That is the creation of a federal right of action over which state courts have jurisdiction if their laws otherwise allow. It's not the creation of two causes of action, one state and one federal. Uh, and, and, and that's why, if otherwise permitted, may give the states some leeway, maybe more than they would have under test of ECAT to exclude them, but it doesn't actually affect the availability of the action in federal court. Although even if it did, um, Chief Justice Roberts, in this case, there has been no dispute that this action is otherwise permitted by Florida law. What, what about a diversity action? You could not bring this action in state court because it's contrary to the law, the rules of the court of that state. But there's diversity. Can you bring that diversity action in federal court? Well, there's a uh, there's a, a split in the circuits over that question at this point. But my answer is yes, uh, because it's it's a federal cause of action governed by substantive federal law, as the as the uh, Second Circuit's opinion in Gottlieb held. The implication of that is if there's any basis for jurisdiction whether diversity or federal question, you have the right of action in federal court. And it's not contingent on whether state law allows the, the right of action. Well, how, how is that? I mean, the description of the uh, right of action is uh, that, that it exists only if permitted by the laws or rules of court of a state. I think, again, Justice Scalia, that, that, that's a description of the conditions under which it may be brought in state court. What, it's not, what, what is a description of the cause of action, then? The description of the cause of action is that if the statute is violated — Where is it in the statute? I mean, I, I'm it, reading it, the section that says, under protection of subscriber privacy rights, subsection 5 is entitled private right of action. And the only right of action it describes is that a person who has received more than one telephone call blah, 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 uh, may, if otherwise permitted by the laws or rules of the court of a state, bring in an appropriate court of that state action. Now, even if you say that that cause of action is bringable in federal court, why wouldn't it be still governed by the laws of a state? Well, it, it, it goes to the question again, uh, and, and back to my answer to Chief Justice Roberts, of what you consider, if otherwise, available to modify. And to me, I think the most natural reading is that it modifies may bring in state court, because that is the only thing that it makes sense to have state rules well, of court. That's fine. That, that, then where is the creation of a private right of action bringable in federal court, it's, it's, apart from state laws. Where, where does that exist in this statute? I don't see in it. In this section as a whole, I, I think you're looking at C5. B3 is the one that's actually at issue here, but its, it's phrasing is the same. It's at 10A in the blue brief. And, and the act that the, uh, the statute as a whole creates an entitlement to bring an action that uh, yields certain recoveries. And, you know, this Court has never looked at uh, uh, statutory provisions that create rights of action and say they may be brought in particular courts, it hasn't read the, the, the reference to may be brought in the courts as limiting the right of action. In Taflin, for example, the RICO statute says you may bring an action in federal court to recover damages for a violation of that. Counsel, do you, know, do you know why the Solicitor General is not here defending the proposition that federal law provides a federal cause of action that can be brought in federal court? Uh, no, I don't know why. Uh, uh, they don't tell you uh, when they're not filing a brief their reasons why, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, I Is think it because the FCC once took a position that the action was um, 
limited to state courts? No, the FCC has never taken the position that it's limited to state courts. They have, in a number of, of, of things that they have written about the statute, said, uh, in the words of the statute, that an action may be filed in, in state court. They have never stated one way or another a position on the question of whether it may be filed in federal court. In the Charvat case, um, they did file an amicus brief in the Sixth Circuit taking the position that the right of action created by the statute is in all respects governed by substantive federal law. Uh, they didn't say anything one way or another about uh, whether the Sixth Circuit actually had jurisdiction. Uh, uh, it would seem kind of odd if they took the view that it didn't, that they wouldn't have mentioned it. But how, Could you clarify this? one one point for me? You, you, you indicated um, — that no state has said that you cannot bring the action, and yet, then you said, but Texas said it has to be specifically authorized. Did the state legislature of Texas specifically authorize yeah, it? Or, it's, it's, don't, don't, don't let me mis, uh, misstate what you said. I, uh, it's it, the, the Texas um, legislature has enacted statutes that says a plaintiff may go to court and bring an action under the TCPA in in those in so many words in addition to whatever right of action it may have under Texas law. Uh, if there are no further questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Nelson. Mr. Gar? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Whether this Court concludes that a 12B1 or a 12B6 label is the better fit, it should hold that Congress did not intend for private TCPA claims to be brought in federal court under 28 U.S.C. 1331. The private right of action that Congress expressed is distinct in three different and meaningful ways. And if you look at the right of action, which is on Mr. page — Mr. Gar, you don't contest the background rule, do you, which is that when Congress creates a cause of action, there is federal question jurisdiction unless Congress does something to divest the federal courts of that jurisdiction. We don't, and we haven't contested that the action here arises under federal law. But what you've got is the question of the interplay between two statutes, 1331 and the private right of action here, in the same way the Court has dealt with the interaction between Section 1983 and other private rights of actions, for example, the city of Rancho Palos Verdes versus Abram case. And in that context, the Court hasn't said, Oh, if it's covered by 1983, of course you've got to bring it under, you can bring it under 1983 unless Congress is unmistakably clear that you can't. But if you say, if you don't contest the background principle, then the question is whether Congress has clearly enough divested the federal courts of jurisdiction over this case, essentially by giving jurisdiction to the state courts. And we've had a number of cases going the other way that suggest that you don't divest one court of jurisdiction by giving jurisdiction explicitly to another court. And the question here is, why is this any different? And has Congress, um, by granting jurisdiction to one court, spoken with the kind of clarity needed to divest the federal courts of their pre-existing jurisdiction? In all of those cases dealt with the constitutional presumption of concurrent state court jurisdiction. And, of course, where the question is whether the, con- whether the Constitution has been displaced, this Court has required Congress to speak with unmistakable clarity. This case is the first case where, the, where this Court is confronted with the question of whether there's any similar presumption going the other way. There's no constitutional foundation for that presumption. It's just the interplay between statutes. And for that reason, we think the Section 1983 But, but nobody has ever point. said that federal question jurisdiction is granted by 1331 is some kind of junior sister when it comes to jurisdiction, is some kind of weaker jurisdictional default provision. I mean, once Congress has granted federal question jurisdiction by 1331, that's the background rule. The federal courts have jurisdiction in the same way that the background rule is that the state courts have jurisdiction. Well, no, the background rule, right, there's a background rule provided by a statute, which Congress can displace by a later enacted more specific statute. And then there's a background rule provided by the Constitution. And our position is, is that usually when the Court talks about Congress displacing, disrupting the traditional balance of powers protected by the Constitution, it does require Congress to speak with unmistakable clarity. It doesn't apply that kind of presumption when you're talking about an earlier, more general statute and a later, more specific statute. In fact, in that situation, the Court's general rule is that the later, more specific statute trumps the earlier, more general one. And, and I, I don't think there's any reason to carve 1331 out as venerable as Do you have any example other than this statute, which is odd, 
Is there any other example of a claim that arises under federal law, as this does under a federal statute, the substantive law is federal, that one may not bring in state court? I can't cite you another example. The Shoshone case was another anomaly. It's a little bit different. But I think you, I think the Court should give credit to what Congress did here. And if you look at the right of action, it's distinct in three different ways. First, Congress only spoke of bringing suits in state courts. Petitioner hasn't identified another federal cause of action where Congress has does, done, done that. Second, Congress modified the entire right of action based on an otherwise permitted by the laws or rules of the court of the state. Under the rules of grammar, there's no question that that clause modifies the may, not anything else that follows in the statute. And the third way it's distinct, Justice Ginsburg, is that Congress spoke of the limitations on state courts and state laws before it even expressed the violation. In the typical way that Congress expresses a private right of action, and I've looked at a lot of them in the last few days, Congress talks about the violation, and then it at times provides a descriptive matter where it could be brought. Here, but in the is, first — Is the law any different, the violation and the governing law any different than if the Attorney General had brought suit or if the FCC sought to enforce this law? I mean, the substance of the law — Whoever sues the Attorney General, the FCC, the federal law that governs is the same, isn't it? Well, I think there's separate provisions that allow the State Attorneys General to go into federal court and the, the FCC has its own enforcement authority. They aren't conditioned by this limitation. We're talking about this private but right I'm of action. I'm talking about the, the, the claim of the, the violation, the wrongful conduct, is the same whether the Attorney General is suing, whether the FCC is enforcing? I think the basic elements of the cause of action are going to be the same. But state law can limit the availability of that cause of action, the, the, the ability to bring it in a court. And under, for example, by a class action rule, or just saying you can't bring those claims at all, or statute of limitations, petitioner's view is that a plaintiff can circumvent those limitations altogether authorized by Congress in the most important clause of this private right of action, simply go into federal court and be gone with those limitations. Sotomayor, what's the logic of your position? Congress does a whole study about how these harassing calls and emails and other things are to citizens. And all of a sudden, it's going to limit the rights of those citizens to recover under the Act to those states that are going to say, okay, why even bother passing a federal law if it was going to give states the option to protect against this kind of conduct alone? It it created a public federal right. Congress all the time creates federal legal protection. Generally, it does. You've You've just admitted to Justice Ginsburg, nowhere else has it created a federal right with a private cause of action in which it's limiting the protections of the federal law to those states that decide they want to do it, too. And my I mean, generally, Congress creates a federal right because they don't think the states are doing enough. And there's no question that they would have a federal right. And, and of course, this, this private right of action is distinct. My point is only it's not unusual for Congress to create a federal right and not provide a private right of action, for example, on, under the provision in Gonzaga v. Doe. Unquestionably. But it's, it is unusual for them to create a federal right with a cause of action and then limit its application to those states that say it's okay. I go back to my question. Well, well, Why not simply say to the states, please do something about this? I, I think that I would point you to the statutory findings, and if you thought it appropriate, look at uh, Senator Holland's statement as well. And the reason why it makes sense is Congress is dealing with a situation that when it acted, the vast majority of states had, had passed laws to allow consumers to deal with this problem at the state level. They identified this interstitial void that Your Honor spoke about in your opinion on the, the Second Circuit, and Congress acted to close that enforcement loophole to authorize states to allow consumers to go after interstate calls. Well, was it really a loophole? What would — I mean, if this — if conduct is if — if the telemarketers are calling from out of state, but the impact is in the state, the person who's being called, seems to me that there certainly would be jurisdiction over the out-of-state tort visa who's doing something out of state that has its impact, that targets the state, and it has its impact. I, I've struggled with that, too, <laughs> Justice Ginsburg, but the one thing I can say is that Congress perceived that enforcement gap that's identified in the statutory findings reproduced in the addendum here, and Congress 
you would presume acted to fill the gap that it saw. And it did this by keeping it at the state level, keeping in mind that we're talking about something with an enormous potential for volumes of claims. Well, this is the part that's worrying me. On your side, it's hard and it's an unusual statute. Uh, but the — certainly, and I agree with you, that the language of the statute uh, suggesting a kind of reverse preemption, uh, something like that, and certainly Senator Hollings' comment, and certainly the fact that they specifically provide for an attorney general to bring an action in state court suggests that they wanted the smaller private actions in state — I mean, in federal court, in state court. That favors you. All right, but then I thought, as you're speaking — uh, what about diversity jurisdiction? And, and I don't see why well, there wouldn't be diversity jurisdiction in terms of trying to get these out-of-state people. And if there's diversity jurisdiction, why in heaven's name would they want to say, but there is no arising under jurisdiction? Well, uh, so, so, I'm, so I'm pushed the other way by that. So, so, so what, what do you think? What do you think? Well, ultimately, all of the Federal circuits that have grappled with this problem have concluded that recognizing diversity jurisdiction isn't fundamentally incompatible with saying there's no Federal question jurisdiction. For, I know, for but why, if you were sitting in Congress and somebody did tell you Senator Hollings apparently never thought of this, but say to Senator Hollings, Senator, there will be diversity jurisdiction here, and he, when he thinks about it, say, hey, great, that's wonderful, because these people are all in State A and they're phony people in State B. Now, if that was his reaction, then someone would say, what about arising under jurisdiction? And what I'm thinking is, if I imaginatively put myself in his position, I think, huh, why not? For, for two reasons, Justice Breyer. Uh, what? Um, the first is the mountain controversy. Diversity has an amount of controversy requirement of $75,000, which makes it more likely where a plaintiff has that. It would be in a situation with it where it would incur the cost of an attorney and other expenses to go into federal court. Mm-hmm. Federal question has no amount of controversy after it's true. 19. There's a flooding the courts problem. Exactly. And the, and the amount of controversy checks that. The second reason is that to the extent that Congress created this unique federal right and intended it to behave like state laws, as Judge Calabrese described it on the Second Circuit, mm-hmm. then it's more natural to think of diversity jurisdiction allowing the federal courts to entertain what is, in effect, a state cause of action than it would be for federal question jurisdiction where you have the anomalous situation of someone going into federal court and saying, I'm not bound by these state law limitations, for example, the limitation on the class action, because I can bring this federal private right of action under federal question for $500 or whatever it is. I mean, How about it, supplemental jurisdiction? Uh, it doesn't, doesn't have an amount in controversy. I, I, we would put that in the same category of diversity, which is to say, I mean, ultimately, I think it, particularly if you look at this as the private right of action, Congress did not express a private right of action for someone to go into federal court here. If this Court looked at it through the lens of its private right of action jurisprudence, the Court would say, I would think, you did not confer a private right of action to go into federal court in the unique way that you expressed it here. If the question was, if this private right of action said you can sue an in-state company, and a plaintiff came here saying, well, it says in-state, but they didn't say you can't sue an out-of-state, this Court would say, no, Congress said in-state. We pr- we, that's the private right of action it but created. Congress, Congress also, it made, for attorney general suits, it said, and federal court jurisdiction is exclusive. So it's given federal court exclusive jurisdiction to uh, adjudicate this claim, because the claim, as you, I, I think, as you recognize, is the same whether it's brought by the FCC, the attorney general private. So it used the word exclusive there, but it said nothing in this private right of action about the state courts being exclusive. And I think on that, I mean, first, it makes sense that they would authorize federal jurisdiction for the state attorney general's actions because they authorized the FCC to intervene there. It also makes sense that they said exclusive there because there they were dealing with the constitutional presumption that state courts have concurrent jurisdiction unless Congress affirmatively says they don't. This Court had decided Taflin a year earlier, and so it would, to give Congress its due, it would make sense if you presume they're aware of this Court's decisions, that it would say exclusive there. The constitutional you, pre- you seem to be arguing for a three-tier standard for displacing jurisdiction. So if Congress wants to make a federal claim uh, 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 cognizable only in federal court, it has to be very, very clear. 
if it wants to, to displace diversity jurisdiction, it doesn't have to be that clear, but maybe it has to be certain, clear to a certain degree. If it wants to displace federal question jurisdiction, it doesn't have to be nearly as clear. But we're not. We're well, certainly well, not arguing for a distinction between diversity and federal question. And, and ultimately, if pushed, we would take the position that because Congress was clear it wasn't authorizing suit in federal court, we think diversity should go, too. My response to Justice Breyer was that it, it's a closer call because of the, the amount of controversy and the, the extent to which Congress created when, a right. When there right. is suit in federal court, let's say these attorney general suits, uh, what, are the suit, what is the suit governed by? Is it governed by state law? I think it would be governed by federal law. I think to the extent there's a — Well, I mean, I, federal law mirroring state law? No, because the, 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 the public right of action isn't conditioned the same way the, the private right of action well, is. And it's the authority to enforce, right? If uh, you look at the public right of action — Civil not, actions brought under the subsection. Right. The, the public right of action isn't brought under B-3, which is a private right of action. And the anomalies arise when you think of allowing these claims in federal. So, so you have a different, a different, a different law applied if, and the, the state law limitations don't apply if it's a suit in, in federal court by by an attorney general. The state law limitations apply to the private right of action. The, the Congress didn't say, here's the federal. It's so weird. I can't understand that. It, but, but, Your Honor, it's only weird if you say they can bring the private right of action in federal court. If you say that Congress meant these to be limited to state court, it makes perfect sense. Congress was making clear, states, you have authority to address this problem. You can address it under your own law. I think, Mr. Garr, what Justice Ginsburg and Justice Alito were suggesting is that this is a momentous thing for Congress to do, to deprive the federal courts of jurisdiction over a cause of action that's been created by Congress and a cause of action that has federal law as the rule of decision. The usual presumption is that, of course, federal courts have jurisdiction over those matters under Section 1331. And this is one peculiar way of divesting those federal courts of jurisdiction. Obviously, Congress knew how to write an exclusive jurisdiction statute. It didn't here. So why should we give Congress the benefit of the doubt and sort of say, well, Congress must have had something else in mind, even though Congress didn't articulate that? And if Congress has to say exclusive, then we lose. I'm not arguing otherwise. But I think our position is, is what Congress did here was unmistakably different and clear enough. And the flip side of what you've just said is to say that Congress meant nothing when it went out of its way to create what all agree is this extraordinarily unique No, I don't action. think that's right, because this is not superfluous because of that provision that, you know, the TESTA provision, which says that state courts don't have to entertain this cause of action. So in the usual case, state courts would have to entertain this cause of action. Here, Congress is saying, no, if they feel as though that will deluge state courts, they have an out. And if Congress had intended that, Your Honor, I think the more natural way for it to have said it would, be, would have been something like, in an action brought in state court, it may be limited by the laws or rules of that court. Here, Congress cabined the entire right of action, may, comma, subordinate clause, which modifies the may. And there's just, in any other case, I, I think, Your Honor, the, the Court would read the, the, the if otherwise permitted clause as modifying the may and therefore the entire right of action. But can just, Congress create a, um, a federal, can Congress, in effect, delegate to the states the contours of a federal, a federal cause of action? I mean, you keep talking about it as a federal cause of action. I think but it's, it's not really if, uh, if its existence or non-existence depends upon state law. Or at least it depends upon state law, you say, if it's brought in state courts. However, if it's brought in federal court by the attorney general, you have a totally different law applying, a federal law. I think in the Shoshone case, Congress created a right of action whose content was, was supplied by state law. So, In so which case? The Shoshone mining case. It's, a, it's cited in our brief. It's but that's it's not this case. No, no it's no, no, this it, case. It, we're not saying that this case is on force with that case, but I, I think it's, it's an example where, where state law would, would fill the content of the federal. Why, why wouldn't right. the, the, the problem that Justice Scalia just identified we were talking about suggest actually favor their side that that in conformity with state law is talking about procedure. Uh, I mean, imagine that state law has a two-year limitation period or one year. You see, I don't know what the limitation period is here. It may be longer. Uh, and so what happens is 
where you go into uh, the Attorney General brings the action, you're going to say it's four years, but if, if it's in a state court and a private person, it would be one year. That doesn't seem to make sense. It then seems to make sense if you interpret that provision as saying what court you can go into in the state. If the state permits you to go to the superior court or the small claims court or the, the in other words, procedural rules. Well, in, in Congress didn't just say procedure. It said laws or rules of the It court, did, but look, what, well, how do you get out of the mess then? What, what happens when the state attorney general brings an action in a federal court as he is permitted to do? What statute of limitation or substantive rule do you apply? It would be the general four-year federal statute of limitations. I mean, it, the way well, that's you, now really odd because we are then going to get different statutes of limitations depending upon whether a state attorney general or an individual. But, but it's or, it's not odd if you give effect to the language of B three, which in a sense says we're going to leave this up to the states. Congress contemplated through this language that there could be fifty different rules about how private TCPA claims would be brought in state court. I, th I think that's undisputed. The question is whether or not you plaintiffs can just say, I want out of that and go into federal court, and conversely, whether defendant can remove any claim brought in state court I'm having, in federal court. I'm sorry. I'm having trouble, Mr. Garr, figuring out what exactly is at issue here. It seems to me that there are two possible views on it. First is, is there federal jurisdiction over one of these actions? The second of all is, is there a private right of action apart from the one that can be brought under subsection B3, which is one in state court? Right. Now, which, which are we supposed to decide? I can see the federal question jurisdiction issue being straightforward. Federal law creates this cause of action. Therefore, um, uh, you can say that it is under 1331, there's jurisdiction. But then you can't do anything once you're in federal court because the private right of action is limited to state court. And, and our position is ultimately both are at issue. Certainly the focus is, is, of this case has been on the jurisdictional question, which is the 12B1. But if the Court thinks that there's federal jurisdiction, then it should say the cause of action fails under 12B6 because both arguments are based on the same exact statutory language. This Court has recognized, for example, in the Merrow Dow Pharmaceuticals case, that the availability of a private right of action intersects with jurisdiction. The Court recognized the same point in the National Passengers Association case 414 U.S. 453. Let's go back to the, in this, this claim, unlike the Shoshan mining, this claim arises under federal law. There's no question about that. We it? don't dispute that. Okay. So it's federal, federal law creates the cause of action, and when federal law creates the cause of action, the rule has always been this 1331 jurisdiction. Unless a later enacted statute uh, precludes that rule. And here, the, the later enacted statute doesn't limit. But the later enacted limit. statute doesn't say that federal law no longer creates the cause of action. It, the later enacted statute creates the cause of action. Federal 1331 doesn't create a cause of action. It's, it's jurisdictional only. They need to have a You cause have of jurisdiction when federal law creates a cause of action. Unless it's been displaced by a later enacted and provision. Mr. And Mr. Carr, do you have any examples of that, places where we've said Congress has divested the court of federal question jurisdiction, and by what means? I don't have an example on 1331. I do have Section 1983, which I think is a, is a perfect parallel, because there you've got a venerable general provision, Section 1983, which is actually older than 1331. And the question comes along from time to time whether a later enacted federal right can be enforced through 1983. And the Court in that context says, although we generally presume that you can go through 1983, if there's a later enacted specific enforcement mechanism, we give the And how specific does it have to be? I mean, how vague are we willing to go here and say, okay, Congress has done a good enough job because somehow we have some idea that they wanted these cases to end up in small claims court? I think if you look at the city of Ranchos Palos Verdes case, which I would encourage you to look at, I think it doesn't have to be nearly as specific as my friend is claiming. 
I think you look at the all signposts of congressional intent. Here you've got a language which is unmistakably distinctive, the state law, state court focused. You've got a structure of an act where Congress, when it wants concurrent jurisdiction or federal jurisdiction, it says so, it provides the rules for venue and whatnot. You've got um, legislative statutory findings indicating that Congress both was aware of the vast volumes of calls which could create potential claims, wanting to address a particular problem of an enforcement gap at the state level. And then if you choose to look at it, you've got the legislative history of the sponsor of this very unusual provision. When, when Congress creates a, a federal claim, it usually doesn't. I mean, the assumption is that there's going to be concurrent jurisdiction. Yes, and we're not. I mean, the question is whether or not that assumption should be displaced here, and we're saying that Congress's um, expressions of intent displace it here. And, and again, I think if petitioner — Can we go back to your 1983 example? Because I was thinking about that and said, well, the later specific statute is another federal statute. You, Congress has another federal statute that um, makes the more general 1983 not available because you have the more specific federal statute. And, and I think that's why the parallel seems apt to us here. You've, instead of dealing with the Congress displacing case state court jurisdiction and constitutional presumption, you have an earlier enacted federal statute, 1331, and the later enacted federal statute, the TCPA private right of action here. Yeah, but the, the, the difference is that the 1983 cases don't deal with what this deals with, which is displacement of the jurisdiction of federal courts. And we are jealous of our jurisdiction, not only in the constitutional cases that you refer to, but in all cases. And I had thought that the general rule that you have to be clear when you take cases out of the federal courts, I thought that that applies not just where you're dealing with the constitutional jurisdiction, but also where you're dealing with uh, already conferred statutory jurisdiction. And why shouldn't I apply that presumption? But but I, but I think this Court has a, a more generous attitude towards Session 1983, and I think in your opinion in the Rancho Palos Verdes case, you, you spoke of a rebuttable presumption that Congress doesn't mean to, repla- to displace Section 1983, but yet you found it there because of a specific enforcement mechanism. I think the enforcement mechanism here is, is much more specific and meaningful than even the one in the Rancho Palos Verdes case. It didn't deal with the jurisdiction of federal courts. That's what gets our hackles up. It, it did not. When you're telling us that we've been ousted of jurisdiction. It, it did not. You don't like that. <laughs> well, Council, we've been talking about where this provision fits, basically, into our general jurisprudence in this area. But I've never seen a statute remotely like this before. Is there anyone where you have a federal — where you have Congress creating a cause of action that can be brought in state courts, unless the state court says it can't, saying nothing at all about whether there's a federal cause of action? This is the strangest statute I've ever seen. I, we totally agree. But, but I think the important point from our perspective is — Either Congress meant what it said, and this Court should give effect to what it said in this very distinct and unusual way, or it's rendered, you know, largely meaningless, except in the most generalized sense, because if petitioner is right, you can bring a claim in state or federal court. The claim that you bring in federal court is in no way limited, but <coughs> limited by the laws or rules of a state court. And all of the stuff that Congress said about the state courts and the state law-focused language at the very beginning of its cause of action is meaningless because Congress didn't have to say any of this to authorize um, people to go into state court under concurrent jurisdiction conferred by the Constitution. And our position is, is that this Court should give effect to the words and the private right of action, distinct as it is, that Congress created and hold that Congress did not intend for plaintiffs to be able to bring, to circumvent these limitations by going into federal court under 1331. Could you tell me why you seem to be taking somewhat contradictory positions? You seem to be conceding that this is not a a federal subject matter jurisdiction issue, but the scope of the cause of action that was created. Um, the judgment was on the basis of lack of federal subject matter jurisdiction. Aren't you trying to alter the judgment? And didn't you need to cross-petition to do that? Well, I probably wasn't clear enough, Justice Sotomayor. Our, our position is that ultimately there is no federal question jurisdiction, that although it arises under 1331, the, the specific provision here was never intended to be enforced through 1331 and instead was only authorizing a So you're saying it's a, a state could, if it chose, say, we're only going to award actual damages, not the $500 statutory 
No, I don't think the state could actually alter what Congress said. It can, it can alter, as Congress said, the ability to bring a right of action. Now, I do think this Court could affirm. But it can. It could choose not to enforce that federal right of action. And in that case, a private citizen would go to its state attorney general and say, bring this action on behalf, or go to the FCC and say, bring an enforcement action. There are, there are public rights, public ways to enforce that. Just to be clear, we think this Court could affirm on the alternative ground of 12b-6 that there is federal question jurisdiction, but this private right of action doesn't confer a right to go into, into federal court. The, my friend has said that that position has been waived under 12h of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. We haven't waived 12b-6. We just haven't asserted yet. It's clear that federal courts can convert 12b-1 motions into 12b-6 motions, and there would be no reason for this Court to remand simply for us to assert a 12b-6, put a 12b-6 label on the same position that we would be back before the courts arguing, transforming judicial review into something close to a pink. Wouldn't that be the oddest creature that's, that's ever been seen? Uh, a cause of action created by Congress that is not a claim arising under federal law. That's what you'd be saying. No, it would be a claim arising under federal law without a private right to bring it in federal court. And it would be odd, Your Honor, in our position, we agree with our friends that this is an odd statutory provision. We ask this Court to give effect to its language, uh, which, which uh, both sides agree is odd, but we think points to the conclusion that Congress meant for these claims to be brought in state court and not in federal court under federal question jurisdiction. But I guess that's the question, Mr. Garf. Both sides agree it's odd, and all nine justices agree it's odd. I mean, I think we can say the statute is odd. And the question is, where do we go from there? And where, you know, what's the default position? If it's odd and we can't figure it out, the default position seems to be federal courts have jurisdiction over federal questions. But I think that that deprives — yes, it's odd. But it's odd in a way that one must presume that Congress actually meant what it's, what it was doing in several different ways here. I think it gets to a point where you just can't presume that Congress didn't mean the impact of its words here, so we would urge this Court to give effect to them. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Nelson, you have four minutes remaining. I want to start where Justice Kagan left off. Uh, which is the presumption of the existence of federal jurisdiction unless Congress affirmatively displaces it. My friend suggested that that may not apply or may not apply as strongly when we're talking about federal statutory jurisdiction and specifically 1331. But this Court's decision in Colorado River, uh, cited in our reply brief, says exactly the opposite, that a subsequent more specific federal statute does not displace the general grant of federal jurisdiction under 1331 absent um, absent uh, some clearer indication than uh, the mere existence of an optional state court jurisdiction over the claim. As to the oddness of the statute, a point on which we, we all seem to now agree, the point I would make there is I think that respondents' position makes this statute even odder because it suggests that that somehow May means it may only be brought in federal court, yet it doesn't mean it may only be brought in federal court if there's diversity or 1367. But as, as Judge Easterbrook said in Brill, if may really means may only, then it wipes out uh, uh, diversity and, and 1367 as well. Are you arguing only about the rising under jurisdiction, or are you arguing also about the federal cause of action that can be brought in federal court? In other words, I'm trying to figure out what we're being asked to decide in this odd case. I understand the idea, and I'm sorry to take up your time, um, I understand the idea that this is a federal question because it's created by a federal law. Can you go get into federal court, and then we'll have another case about whether you can bring a cause of action there? Well, I, I certainly hope not, Your Honor. I mean, I, I think if you look at, at what the, the question presented is and what the judgment below is, it's a question of, of subject matter jurisdiction, a 12B1 dismissal, and a question presented as to the existence of 1331. But, um, you know, our, our point is not to get people into federal court so that they can be told that they have no right of action. And, and the answer to that point is that the, the, the reference to state courts in the provision is not a limitation on the right to recovery. Congress often actually creates um, rights of action that refer to a particular court 
it, it's, it's the Federal Court in, in every case but this one. But as in RICO, as in the Carmack Amendment that was the subject of the 1912 case of Galveston, Harrisburg, and San Antonio Railway, cited in our briefs, where the Carmack Amendment said that person's damage might make complaint in any circuit or district court of the United States, and the Communications Act provisions that we cite on page 10 of our reply say people have certain rights to recover and they may bring them in federal court. But those references to the courts have never been considered to be a limit on the right of action. Creating the ability to go into a court and obtain a recovery creates a right of action, and it's transitory. It can be brought in any court of competent jurisdiction, and the reference uh, in the statute to a court that has jurisdiction over it does not mean that, this, that the cause of action somehow does not exist outside of that court. The cause of action exists, and the question is, is whether there's a jurisdictional basis. And that's practically, at this point, I think, been conceded that this statute arises under federal law. And there's really no indication whatsoever that merely by saying may uh, be brought in state court that Congress intended to displace federal jurisdiction or to create a right of action that uniquely among federal rights of action is only available in state court. Now, it's true, may, uh, or if otherwise permitted, as, as uh, my friend said, modifies may, but it doesn't, doesn't just modify may in isolation. It's may what? May, if otherwise permitted, bring an action in state court. So the if otherwise permitted modifies the conditions on which the action may be brought in state court. But it really makes no sense whatsoever to import state court rules uh, into whether the action is available in a federal court. Um, except, except that that's the only section that creates a private right of action. Th- that's right. The, the private right of action is created, but the private right of action is not contingent on that if. It's the ability to bring it in state court. Thank you, counsel. Counsel, the case is submitted.